brought him in to solve an unspeakable crime. Detective Dormer, it's such an honor to meet you. I'm Detective Ellie Bird. Someone out there just beat a 17-year-old girl to death. Your job is to find him. Doesn't say in the report that he clipped her nails. He washed her hair. No mutilation? Not this time. He tortures him, makes him do things, and keeps him there for three days. This guy, he crossed the line, and he didn't even blink. Police! What Detective Dormer doesn't know is that murder is only part of the plan. film is it anyway where uh the points are just like the talent portion of a beauty contest sorry i pulled uh drew carry lines i had it one i have them a couple ready so that was the one i went with uh yes as always i'm your co-host josh page and with me my co-host steve molina hello hello everyone josh i gotta tell you something up front you're about as interesting to me as a clogged toilet is to a plumber Wait, wait, there's no, wait, 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 there's no punchline to that clogged toilet line? That's just the Al Pacino line from uh, the movie. Oh, oh, oh it goes, goes to show how much I was paying attention. Wow. Um, I, don't know, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've been up for six days. I agree. I feel like it's ironic we're doing a film we've been called Insomnia, and I feel like I have been hit with my own case of insomnia. Really? Not that I'm not literally sleeping, but that's just... Day to day, I'm like, wow, I'm either alert, like I've had 10 cups of coffee, or like I am ready to just take a nap for like two days. Yeah, I think kind of like Al Pacino's character in this movie, just because every day is the same fucking thing, the same I'm kind of just in this haze that Pacino's in. Pacino's looks in this movie, I really could relate. Just the look, that tired look when he's just looking at everyone like, just With that blank alone. stare. Yeah. I gotta tell you, man, this movie, like, let's just jump right into it here. This movie is arguably... is uh, Insomnia, for those who are not aware. Christopher Nolan's <laughs> hit <laughs> smash success, Insomnia. Smash box office success. It made $113.7 million. That's I'm not nothing to snuff at. Money, absolutely. But, but it is kind of the forgotten child of Christopher Nolan movies. Absolutely. I think that of anyone I know who's ever talked about a Christopher Nolan movie, this is the one that they don't bring up. I think that's because Nolan has kind of distanced himself from it. He's just embarrassed that he was not the one to write the script. I, I, I looked and IMDb, the top trivia, this is the only film by Christopher Nolan in which he does not have an official writing credit, even no. though he wrote the final draft of the screenplay. You sound like you were on to something before I, I horribly cut you off and derailed back no, to the beginning. No, I was just going to, we were talking about Al Pacino, so I was just ready to jump right into that Al Pacino conversation, because I got to tell you, man, this is probably the best performance 
he has given post 2000. Um, and that's an oddly specific um, thing to say. It's an oddly specific um, category because to no put him in. No one can touch pre 2000 Pacino. I mean, sure. maybe pre 90s he kind of fell off. Although he did win his Oscar for Scent of a Woman. I won't necessarily disagree with you. I can't think of anything that he did post-2000. I know people are going to get upset. They're going to go, the Irishman, the Irishman. But I don't know. I don't like loud Pacino. (laughs) I like more just introverted, taking things in, blank stare, Michael Corleone kind of performances from Al Pacino. When he gets too loud and just yelling at the camera like fucking jfk ah i can't i i just that that doesn't Um, work for me that's great that it doesn't work for you it works for me but we're not going to start talking about pacino and the irishman because we'll be here all night you know what i mean but that's i think that we're we're really missing out on is um his outstanding supporting role in um adam sandler's jack and jill where he um i knew you're gonna bring it up I hate, yeah, I, I just, I mean, the, the Don Cochino, I don't know if you've seen the music video. I mean, he really puts some effort into it, you know? This is my fucking union, Josh. This, this is, is my fucking union. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we can agree that this uh, film held a special performance for Latter-day Pacino. So let's uh, take a little step back here. Tell yes. me, uh, do you remember the first time you watched no. Insomnia? I thought that I had, when I had prior said, went through my Nolan phase after, you know, um, realizing he had great work with whatever it was, Batman Begins or, you know, The Prestige or Beyond, and then going back and watching his older films. So I thought I had watched it in high school or early college, and so much of this was just new to me. There were scenes, there were more visuals I held on to like the scene in the fog. Um, and then the, the log scene came back to me as soon as he was running on the logs. I was like, this scene was very familiar. When he was playing uh, Frogger. Yeah, that was really something. Just the, maybe it's just me being uh, how I view film criticism in my later days, but just so how much of it was just this deeply human piece about guilt. So much of it I had not recalled. And so it, watching this was very much so like watching for my very first time. Uh, rewatching this, I kind of feel like was watching it for the first time, just because yeah. the last time I watched it was probably like you, high school, when I was watching Prestige and Memento and trying to binge on Nolan. But I feel like when you're in high school, you kind of fall under the spell of a director a little bit. And because he didn't really accept this movie, I kind of didn't watch, you know, I still do that with Kubrick. His first it's, two movies yeah. to me, I don't really count because he doesn't count them either. <laughs> Right. So I think I watched it once, but I got to tell you, rewatching it this time, it blew my mind. It was, yeah, it was special. This movie was great. I, yeah. This is, I, it makes me wish that, that Nolan would take on projects that uh, he did not write. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's, it's very outside the box. And I will say that it's, to me, it's arguably the most non-Nolan Nolan movie maybe ever I mean it's in the sense that it breaks a lot of his formula you can see that his stamp is on it his trademark touches and we'll get to that but it's um it just doesn't in a certain sense it doesn't feel like anything else he's ever really done like you said it it is a noir movie which we have been covering because the past two movies of his have been noirs 
And this definitely has those elements. And this, but it, exactly. This has those elements. It's just a very different feel. I think the dialogue was different. Way in which uh, the actors were playing everything off. It just felt different. Um, even the dynamic between the two leads. It felt more like a chess game rather than... Because it was a cat and mouse movie, but it was also... It, it, there was so much of this, well, who's really in the right? Who's really in the wrong? There's a lot of morality questioning, in which he brings up in almost all of his movies. You have to question the morality of his characters in almost everything. Absolutely. But, but, but this we'll... is way more of a gray area. The whole movie's a gray area, and I think that that's what makes it special. Literally, Pacino is put in a gray fog. He's, He's put in a gray area. In He's the grayest, put in a gray area. Literally the grayest area on all of the color palette. Yeah, that's another thing that's very Nolan in this movie, though. He, the color palette was kind of uh, the sleekness of it. It was very, um, it kind of just felt like Seattle. It kind of felt a little like a... Well, it was supposed to be Alaska, so maybe he didn't do his total job. It always looked like it was about to rain. Well, I was going to save this uh, for production, but they actually filmed this uh, uh, British Columbia, uh, the Evergreens of, okay. in Canada. I don't know how much of it was like on location in terms of where they went, like for outdoors All locations of it. or ca- cabins, but it really, the aesthetic of like what you're looking at literally looks like it's just exactly where they shot it. It looks All like it they're- was shot in the evergreens. The building that was the police station was already built, but they dressed it up. Uh, and they did actually build Robin Williams' character's log cabin at the very end. Oh, they did? Yeah. Okay, I was going to say, because that would have been seemed like it would have been tricky to try and shoot in, especially given that the finale of it. We could, let's go into pre- pre-production now. After Memento was such a hit, George Clooney and Steven Soderbergh got him the connections to Warner Brothers. <laughs> Those are two pretty big names, especially for a given the time. They're still big names, but even at 2002, like both those names were height. hot. That was their height. After Ocean's Eleven, that's like peak both of them. They literally, it's, it's, that's the ideal time to grab both of those yeah. people. Soderbergh just won the Oscar for Traffic mm-hmm. in 2000, and then Ocean's Eleven comes out in 2001. You're just, it's a double hitter. It is. It's, 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 it's a win-win. So I thought that was very interesting seeing both of their names in the credit, and I flagged it because I had no idea that either of them put money into this. This was also, this also marks the return of Wally Pfister. Yes, it does. Let's get into production. When uh, they filmed this over a three-month period from April to June in 2001, uh, but they said that they were going for a stark palette of whites and blacks and earth tones. Same composer as uh, the following and Memento, David Julian. Yep. But this time he embraced more of an or orchestral sound rather than like an electronic one okay. he said that he was going for more of a hitchcock vibe but the whole movie is very hitchcockian yeah absolutely i feel like nolan definitely got some uh hitchcock like he definitely studied hitchcock before making this movie the plot in terms of putting like an otherwise admirable protagonist in a guilty situation is a very hitchcockian move it's, build, it's building tension, but it's off the dialogue, and you know, again, like, you know, who's in the right and who you feel is in the wrong, and then the turning of the tables, and then uh-huh. having the antagonist turn it, you know, 
try and show a new light on a certain situation and it's very that's a good i didn't think hitchcock when i was watching that's a very good comparison we could also get into casting because this is a fucking star-studded cast al pacino as detective will dormer robin williams as walter finch and hillary swank as detective ellie burr so williams when he was apparently uh when he was trying to get ready for this role he watched a lot of footage of serial killers and them just conversing with people particularly jeffrey dahmer really because he said uh he said what he picked up most about studying the serial killers was how calm and just like how just like how much of a conversation they're willing to have without making things seem weird it's like you feel the weight of their weirdness sure but you they don't act like anything's weird because to them nothing is weird sure that's a good way of putting it yeah he said the more normal it seems the creepier it is yeah but and it's it goes it goes back to this conversation about like thinking that people are just strange like oh it's just a weird dude like oh that's a very odd person and yet realizing that little tick of what makes them whatever you think is strange is actually the very vibe that uh, you know carries the fact that they're serial killers or whatever it is you know yeah this was a uh, rob williams first serial killer performance but not his last it was very dialed back for him and it reminded me did you ever see one hour photo it's been a while that's that movie is really just it's a good movie but it's very notable if only for his performance because he's just like a strange neighborly kind of odd character who you realize is kind of creepy and then you find out he's very stalkerish and it builds and builds and this is a little different um but robin williams is like i you know we we could go into a whole robin williams conversation now but it's gonna be a hard one to get through it's yeah there's but so he was, cover. he's one of the greatest actors of all time, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that he was so, he was able to slip in and out of any character he was trying to portray, you know? He was brilliant in comedy and drama, and sometimes both at once, you know? When watch, you're watching a Dead Poets Society, you're both in awe of this man because of his just general charisma, but he also brings the weight to the role at hand. Absolutely. He's what I think he's what elevates this movie to what it is that makes it special. I think the movie is just a good story regardless, but with someone like him in that kind of role and we'll get to him, but like um, his character and whatnot. And um, he just brings, he, he gives it that extra special something that the movie I feel like would have just lacked otherwise. I kind of wish that Nolan and Warner brothers took a seven approach to this movie and hid the fact that Williams was in the movie at all. You know, yeah, in, that would have been cool. in the movie Seven, you do not know that Kevin Spacey is the killer until he shows up on screen. They don't put his name in the opening credits. His I name was, was not say, on the posters. Yeah. He was not in any of the posters. He was kept secret until he showed up on screen, and it had such an impact. That I kind of wish they did worked. that with Williams in well, this movie. I mean, I, I do agree because, and I'll just say, I'll just go over the note that I made, is that the first sign of Robert Williams is not until 49 minutes into the movie, and it's over the phone. Yep, and you and don't see him until an hour and until, like two minutes into the movie. You don't see him until, almost, until over an hour into the movie, so it's very... 
the fact that you know he's in it builds the anticipation. Whereas, like, if you got word of the Finch character earlier in the story, and you kind of build this persona of like, who is this person, and then you do the reveal, I I think that the suspense would have been even greater than it already is. And the suspense is great. The second you hear Robin Williams over the phone, like the movie changes, the the shift the changes, yeah, the whole the plot shifts, and it's just. That's the suspense that the audience is longing for, you know? It's, dare I say, Hitchcockian. Dare you say, indeed. WB, big first, you know, the, I guess, money. WB equals money. It's just weird because up until now... What's um, kind of interesting uh, to go off of money, in though, is this is the kind of movie that would never get made today because it costs $46 million to make this movie. Mm-hmm. And studios aren't willing to make movies that cost that much money. They're either going to give you $5 million or they're going to give you $125 million. There's really no in-between anymore. It, it, is, it definitely feels that way, especially, you know, pre-COVID-19, with just, just looking at the way numbers have gone in terms of, like, you either have your $200 million Marvel blockbusters or you have your $5 million uh, A24 indie films. And both are, are greeted with success in their own way. So it is interesting. You don't really see a lot of that middle ground budgeting anymore. There's also no more middle ground for directors. There's no like stepping stone. You go from a small independent movie straight to a comic book movie now or straight to a Star Wars movie. Yeah, like, I mean, especially post-Disney both for Marvel and Star Wars. I mean, you um, look at the, the, the Colin Trevorrow's and the, and the Josh Tranks and you see where it fails and then you see, but like, um, you know, other guys like the Ryan Johnson's where it succeeds. And I'm not just talking about like uh, opinion on the film. I'm saying based on the fact that they actually got their projects made. You know what I mean? Um, oh, that too. But I'm talking, you know, prior to Star Wars, the, the last movie uh, Ryan Johnson worked on was Looper, and I don't know what the budget of that was, but it was probably cheap. Right. Or, I mean, you can tell it, it needed the special effects it needed, but it really was not, I would not call it a really big budget movie. Yeah, look at Marvel directors, you know, barring Sam Raimi now, because <laughs> now they could pull in the big hitters, but you look at someone like James Gunn, who prior to making Guardians of the Galaxy, I don't know what the biggest movie he made was, but it wasn't that big. Maybe Slither. Slither and Super. And even then, it's like a lot of that goes to special effects, but like he was not spending a lot of money. Those were maybe $4 million movies. Yeah, where yeah, Nolan yeah. jumped from a $9 million project to making a $46 million project to Batman Begins, which is upwards of $100 million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't look up those numbers. So I have here that the opening shot of this film features hands with rubber gloves a la following a la <laughs> I have that following the making it uh you know another another covid friendly film cat and mouse you got this detective you got this sus this person who's trying to you know just escape the clutches of 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 guilt and all these things and and suspect that uh, you know are they guilty are they not guilty like you know are no, they infected? It, I, Are they not infected? You know? It lays it out both. I think it lays it out pretty clear that they're both very guilty from the beginning. But that's um, what makes it so intriguing. You right. have two people who are guilty trying to hold their heads above water. It's If we're doing a Hitchcock analogy, it's very much like strangers on a train. 
You ready to get into the movie itself? Aside from the opening shot of Rubber Gloves, I've already established this. It's a very COVID-friendly film. The one thing you didn't mention about the opening shot, though, was it was mixed with extreme close-ups uh, with blood on the gloves. Gonna so Maybe not so COVID-friendly. Gonna take it up a notch. Gonna one-up me. Go on. Well, there's, I think there can be blood with COVID, but I don't know. I don't, I don't have experience, but I'm not going to go if you're If it. you're uh, coughing up blood, that's not COVID fr- healthy. Then you, that's, that's not healthy behavior. <laughs> go to the doctor immediately. Not healthy. If you're coughing up blood or shitting blood, I just want to make a note here for anyone who has blood coming out of their body. Hang up this podcast immediately. Just turn and off. And go to the doctor. Stop what you're doing. We don't condone blood coming out of anyone's body in any way. We just want to make that known. I okay. do like when there's blood in films. Only when it's fake. It doesn't make me feel good always, especially when like characters I enjoy are covered. So not a fan of Apocalypse Now with the cow being cut in half? I'm a big fan of Apocalypse Now, but I think we should save that for another episode. I don't know if we're ever going to get to Francis Ford Coppola. Let's not rule it out. I need you to be a little more optimistic here, all right? Please and thank you. Well, we could go to the next cut where they're going on an airplane. This is pure Nolan. The airplane looked very similar to the airplane from Airplane. No, I'm just kidding. But it's interesting because... The airplane is just a very large shot. It starts out large, and then the story gets smaller. So that plane is like Warner Brothers money. (laughs) It's like, hey, we have money now. Well, on that plane is this little guy, this newcomer. Um, How do you pronounce his name again? Al Pacino? I'm going to see bright things in that guy's future. What's his name in Tropic Thunder? It's an Alpa slash chino it's alpa is his first name the rapper and the last name is chino i don't remember the the so just to refresh you the guy who is revealed to be gay with lance from nsync he's tied and they type jack black to the tree and he's like (laughs) he says he talks about he's like uh you know his whatever his love from back home and he says oh some some lance and robert Downey jr in blackface at the oscar nominee he turned around and said what the fuck did i just hear he says, I said, he says, you said, you said Lance? He says, no, nah, I said, I said Nance. Anyway, it's funny, but the character's name in Tropic Thunder is, I think, Alpa. And the uh, last name is Chino. R.I.P. Uh, Jerry Stiller, too. I just, I meant to open this by saying that one of the most legendary people of our lifetime, like for us to be alive while he was alive, Jerry Stiller. I mean, you can't, he's a comedic goldmine. Even, he was he was the only funny thing on King of Queens. I was just gonna say that he's the only. I've watched like my mother watches King of Queens and like I've seen it. and I'm like I chuckle a little bit at Kevin James. I think it's okay, but every time Jerry Stiller's on, I'm like, why can't everyone do what this man does? And I realize he has that like George Carlin way about him. He goes from zero to sixty in the funniest way possible. And he just I just love that he does it without trying. He's always he's like Don Rickles in that way. Jesus Christ, we can Jesus cut that up. <laughs> so we're back on the airplane that is an airplane. I just see this whole episode being so cut that it's like us recording an apology. Like we're so sorry about how belligerent and how derailed we became in this time. Airplane, Al Pacino, good grief. We gotta get this train moving. Let's Al Pacino go. is on the airplane with his uh partner Hap. His um hetero life mate. His hetero life mate. Well, they didn't like each other too much. Actually, 
let's take a step back and like explain that subplot so it's easier to explain the overall plot. Um, the Al Pacino being a dirty cop situation here. Mm-hmm. So we find out throughout the movie that Al Pacino kind of did some seedy stuff in Los Angeles. Well, we he don't really know what it is, right? We do. We find out later in the movie. We, do you want to talk about that now? No, 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 no. What I mean is at this point in the narrative, the audience doesn't really know the details. I'm not going to go into the details right now. I'm just saying that they're in the airplane and things are a little tense. They kind of self-exiled themselves because they don't want to be near their home city. And they land, the plane lands. Yay, we're finally off the fucking plane. Uh, oh and God, Hillary Swank meets them. So long. We've been on the plane. We've been on the plane longer than they have. Uh, and Hillary Swank picks up Al Pacino and his partner. And Swank tells us, tells the audience in an exposition dump, just like how important of a cop Al Pacino really is. She's like, I studied all your cases. I will say, even though I understand it's both important to the plot and to the characters, the exposition through Hillary Swank's character, even in terms of just trying to make the audience realize like how established Al Pacino's character is, was maybe it's because I understood it right away, but I just felt like it was a little berating. Like it, it ultimately had a purpose. It ultimately paid off. She's the span and then she like has to make her own decisions and then like I get it, but like I feel like she was designed for like 80% of this movie. She's designed to just like kind of like worship the ground that Pacino walks on. And all yeah. She, uh, her infatuation was a little too strong. Yeah. And I, again, like I get that it's, it is necessary they laid it on to this character. Right. It just shows how far Pacino's character has fallen. Yeah, so absolutely. they get to the police station and Pacino is like all business. He's Mr. Business here. He's like, fuck this place. Where's the, where's the body? Essentially, he's just like, I, I, don't, I don't care. I don't want to get into details. I've heard it all. Show me the body. Hoo-ah. Uh, they go to the... Fuck JFK. This is my fucking union. It's my fucking union. It's my fucking union. Uh, they look at the body. The strangest part about the whole autopsy was that the killer cut the woman, the victim's nails and uh, washed her. He groomed her. He wined her and he dined her, but he didn't let him tell her what to do. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. That is an arrested development reference, everyone. <laughs> oh, don't derail. <laughs> Pacino, in his Pacinoism, is like, there's no other victim yet, but there will be. There will of course. Be. Of course, because that's how every cop thinks. Go on, keep going. They go to the victim's bedroom, and uh, Pacino finds a ripped picture. Uh, the picture is of the victim and her best friend. The friend is in the trash. She's the trash woman. Wow, the friend is in the trash. Throw her in the trash. When I'm dead, just throw me in the trash. <laughs> throw me in the trash. But uh, Pacino also finds an expensive piece of jewelry in the bedroom, uh, a necklace. Pacino asks, did, did the victim have a boyfriend? Good, I want to talk to him. Or pull him out of a class just to make him squeal, just to intimidate him. And so, Hilary Swank looks at him and says, sir, it's 10 p.m. I love that. The next scene is he goes to uh, the hotel and... 
he puts the picture of the victim next to his bed and then Hillary Swank picks him up and they start doing that like banter between the two where he gives advice that is like where he's just so full of crap and she's eating it up. They get to the high school and Hillary Swank and Al Pacino. No, Hillary Swank is not there. It's Pacino and Hap. Listen, have you ever watched Twin Peaks? Uh, I watched. We've talked the about first this, couple of episodes, and then I we've talked about. It. You've never really like you've watched it, but you're, you've never like taken a deep dive. Because yes. this was the first time I got a Twin Peaks vibe. Because if you watch, and save this in your back pocket for when you do watch it, that Agent Dale Cooper, played by Kyle MacLachlan, and Harry Truman, who is the sheriff who wears a cowboy hat. Harry Truman. <laughs> that's his. That's his right hand man. They interrogate Bobby Briggs who is the boyfriend of victim Laura Palmer. I'm not going to derail, but I'm making this a point because I'll make it the point again later that Laura Palmer is found dead. And so this Spoiler. expert, well, it's the opening minutes. Of the, no, uh, all the posters are who killed Laura Palmer as the tagline of the goddamn show. So they bring an expert agent, FBI agent, Dale Cooper, and he comes to investigate. And the first person they investigate is her boyfriend her the, it's always, the, uh, the victim's spouse. boyfriend it's always the spouse and the vibe of this movie is very similar to a vibe in twin peaks when they interrogate bobby briggs and he's got that like cool guy like yo like i don't need to talk i don't need to tell you guys nothing he's cool maybe he's got a slick back hair yeah, or what is the what is the boyfriend's line hey fuck you just a little prick in a leather jacket what the fuck do you know he gives him tood real quick and i love that they take the cigarette from him in the classroom, and then they... I love they, that he has the balls to think that he could just light a cigarette up in class. It's outrageous. And he's talking to the fuck... He's talking to the cops. He lights a cigarette in <laughs> class. It's school. It is a Twin Peaks moment. You're right. You have no idea until you watch... Really get into Twin Peaks. Pacino like, takes the cigarette from him, flicks it to the side <laughs> of the room, grabs his desk, and drags him slowly to him. So I made a note of that, threatening Al Pacino, moving a desk closer so his victims can hear his deep whispers just a little louder is the note I made. Randy. This whole thing you're doing, you know, this fuck the world act. Now that might work with you, mama. It might even work with a couple of these local cops who've known you long enough to figure you're too dumb ever to kill anyone without leaving a couple of witnesses and a signed confession. Ain't gonna work with me. Because I know things. You understand? I know you beat your girlfriend. I know she was seeing somebody else. Somebody she might have even gone to see after she walked out on you Friday night. Now you gonna tell us who that somebody might be? Are you so fucking stupid? You gonna leave yourself as the last person to see Kate Connell alive? I picture that this is this this dialogue is only included to show the glimpse of what Hillary Swank sees when she sees like. Al Pacino as well, the she wasn't hero. in this interview. It was just nope. him and half. No, but when she talks about him, you know, we were saying that she hypes him up. Like yep. she's like, the, like, why is it, what is it that makes the Pacino character so special? That makes Dormer such a 
what makes him the best kind of cop? And then you look at this dialogue and you're like, okay, so he has this intimidating presence about him where he controls the situation, where he draws you in so much because he's so fearless and he's so intimidating. And like, I feel like this scene, if only to show who that character is in Hillary Swank's eyes is the entire point of that dialogue. Because he really just laces into this kid. So they go to the hallway and it's just a scene between Swank and him where he gives more sage advice, more of the bullshit she's eating up. Uh, they say small things. Remember the second you're about to dismiss something, look at it again, which Hillary Swank takes to heart because that comes into play later. That Absolutely. Club. Absolutely. So then we go to the police station where they found Kay's bag. Right. And I don't know if this is tech, if this is legal or not, but uh, they wanted to trap the killer essentially by putting the bag back, but making an announcement that she had a bag so that the killer would go to try and find the bag. But as we would learn later, going to a scene of the crime to plant things is something that will. Uh, um, that's true. That's why I'm saying. I don't know if it's entirely legal, but this is something Pacino's character does a lot of. Right. You want to get the vibe that whether it's legal or not, it's something that he's almost playing by his own rules, and you don't necessarily feel like he's in the wrong for doing so. That's uh, the vibe I get. And not that, like, you don't... It's not that you, like, you know you can't really trust him, and at the same time, you, like, know he's, like, the top of his game for a reason. You know what I mean? Like, he's bending a few of the rules. Yeah, we're watching it happen in action. So... They plant the bag back at the cabin, and of course, the killer falls for the trap. And of course, like every other uh, serial killer movie, he's wearing a poncho. And the chase begins. Pacino runs after the killer. And wait, where at the fo- where at the <clears throat> cabin raid? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, and I don't know why I I don't feel this way about any other shot in the movie, but when they first enter, they first do the cabin raid, and they first go in, and there's water pouring everywhere. It literally looks like the Batcave in Batman Begins. I don't know if that's on purpose. I'm assuming that, like, he has that aesthetic for that kind of. Well, movie. like we were saying, same production designer, same cinematographer. Oh, that's true. It might same have not director. Been, it might have not even been Nolan. It could have just been everyone else involved. But either way. And of course, Pacino runs after him because two men in their 60s can run like that. I wanted to make a note, and I don't want to. I don't want to derail, but the amount of. S- sterile or uh, thorough quick movements that Pacino makes virile is very um, I had to suspend a lot of disbelief every time he would turn really quick to see him especially the log scene we'll get where to that I was bit. gonna say we'll talk about it later but that log scene you do not cut above the waist on those shots Pacino <laughs> would have to be in immense shape and have the amount of um, and I'm not knocking him, because I oh, think when he was no, making no, this no, movie, yeah. he was 62 or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he seemed like he was in decent shape. But like at the same time, it's like to move the way that these characters move, it's a lot to believe that Pacino can really pull it off. But I mean, hey, you know, if Hugh Jackman's trying to prove anything, it's that you can defy all the odds of nature and age and by just staying in shape. The chase begins, and Pacino accidentally shoots his partner Hap. Well, actually, was it an accident? Uh, well, 
let's get there after. But yes, he we'll shoots. talk a bit. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll have a discussion on whether or not it was an accident. The end is actually very poignant in how they call back to it. But yeah, um, but he shoots his partner Hap, and Rob Williams' character gets away. Mm-hmm. But just to lay a little groundwork, we kind of skipped over this before. Uh, at the hotel, when they first check in, Hap and Pacino have dinner where Hap tells... Oh, they have an argument. They have an argument because Hap tells uh, Pacino's character that he is going to comply with with the investigation going on into Pacino's character. They don't tell us what the investigation is about at that moment, but they do say that there's an investigation happening. They set up a very important beef that at this moment is currently being squashed because one of those two people are... The squash about, that beef. They're about to wipe the slate clean and bury, bury the, hatchet the hatchet as one of the characters... This is, is way too many metaphors. ...is about <laughs> literally wiping the slate clean. And because as one of the characters is about to, to die. Um, and it's just funny because having watched their beef, I did not even pick up on it until um, Hap was dying kind of. And I was like, oh, this is pivotal because... Yeah, Hap also be- is literally muttering as he dies. Did, did you do this on purpose? Did, right. did you, and he won't even let Pacino hold him as he right. dies. I will. Don't talk. But they go, they cut to the police station and Pacino lies about what happened. He's claiming that the serial killer actually shot Hap, not him. And then Pacino has to uh, call Hap's wife where she tells him, don't you arrest him? Don't you arrest him? That phone call is some of the best acting Pacino has ever done. It's weird because I keep bringing it back, but it was, it reminded me instantly, and I think it's because Pacino is in both the movies, but it reminded me of the scene in The Irishman when De Niro has to call well, Jimmy Hoffa. They had to mm. say that he was, he has that whole breakdown over the phone. Um, both scenes are different in their own way, and yet, like, that's what I was reminding me of, this whole idea of just having to own up to this very emotional moment but also being the person who killed the other person. You know what I mean? Yeah. Nolan intentionally shot the camera very close to Pacino. They wanted it to feel intimate. Sure. Which I, I felt it. No, so yeah. Like scene, you said with his but, acting, it's just, no, it's just, it's Latter-day Pacino. Like that's a showcase. Just him, even over the phone. Like he nailed whatever it was that Nolan wanted to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just the whisper. Yeah. And, uh, in that scene as well, Swank is uh, given the case of Hap's murder. So she has to just investigate how Hap was killed. Right. And she essentially thinks it's an easy job because she knows what happened. Robert Williams, uh, the serial killer, killed him. Obviously, think believing what Pacino said through and through. And then Pacino is driving back to the hotel but makes a little pit stop in an alley and vomits the only reason i bring it up is because in that scene he finds a dead dog in the alleyway and that comes back into play later 
I will say, I don't know if you're here in your notes, but I have, I will say, cause it's the next note I have is the first sign of Pacino having insomnia, how he can't sleep. Yeah. He, he goes back to the hotel and then he has flashes of the victim smiling. And I felt like, again, maybe I'm reaching, but it just subconsciously I'm looking for it, I guess was reminiscent of Leonard's memory of his wife in Memento or Cobb's visions of his children. This idea of peaceful happiness, warmth, everything that these films are not. That's the first time I made that kind of note because it's like, I'm getting a sense bold and following Memento and in this where characters are kind of just in this cold, desolate, part of their lives where they're feeling guilty or they're distraught or whatever but there's some kind of memory of a person or a place of some kind of paradise and some kind of happiness that they are longing for whether it's literally or it's just an idea that they're striving towards it is a theme that's been congruent literally in all three films i've seen it's interesting that his characters seem to hold on to the past they're all reminiscing onto something else something that is gone and something that they they strive towards so they go back to the uh, abandoned area to do a sweep, and it's basically a race for the bullet. Pacino Correct. is looking for it for himself, and Hillary Swank is looking for it for her own investigation. And yep. maybe I didn't make a note of it, but but we this was back in the fog. Pacino found he the found serial it, killer's gun. He found it on site. He found it right when it when the event happened. Yeah, I just wanted to make a note of that because I'm trying to see what's relevant next. And no, it's all good. Knowing that the gun was found by Pacino is very the, important. The next note I have, I don't know where you are, is the first sign of Robin Williams' voice is the phone call at the 49-minute mark just as Pacino... Well, was I was just going to do... There was a walkabout scene. Uh, Pacino's basically doing a walkabout in the middle of the night. Literally, like... Everything, oh, I know what you're talking it's about. I mean, right? As it's just there's so much light, and the streets are empty because it's literally the middle of the night. And he walks back to that alleyway with the dead dog and shoots it. Yes, and extracts the bullet. Yeah, because now that the bullet has been found by the police, he needs to swap out the killer's bullet with his own to make Correct. sure he is not pinned for Will's murder. It's um. It was a very, because I knew as soon as we knew he shot his partner and that that was a bad move on his part. Like he didn't mean for that to happen, obviously, but because of his guilt and the arguments, I knew they were building something. But when he shot the dead dog just to cover up his tracks, I'm thinking like he's doing a little too much extra work. He's got to be feeling extra guilty about all this. You know what I mean? That's why he hasn't been able to sleep. And then Pacino goes to the lab, takes the bullet from the lab, because apparently he could just do that, and swaps the bullets out, unsupervised. I was, I'm, I'm, maybe it's my ignorant movie going in my, in my age, just being able to wave that. But like, I, those are moments I look at, and I'm like, yeah, is it really that easy for him to just override these situations? Like, there are moments that happen in films in general, especially Nolan's movies, where characters can kind of, accomplish things where you're like ha you can't just they weasel that. through situations and you're like is it really that easy and but those are the, moments i mean don't get me wrong we'll we'll definitely touch on this in the dark night when we get to it but there's a lot of moments like that with the joker it's too 
it works out too perfectly for the characters and their situations for it to be believable. But at the same time, if I start extracting moments like that, I kind of lose myself as a moviegoer and I become more of an asshole and I become more pretentious or I become more beyond what it is as a means to be the person to simply be entertained. Like, don't get me wrong. It's important to feel like you're not being... um, uh, told your story through unintelligent means. Like it's important to not feel like you're being spoon fed or that you're being told a mature perspective. But those are moments I definitely have in my like latter days as a film goer. I'm like, how exactly how can you, like you're just swapping bullets. Like The thing that made me go really like no one took a picture of the bullet they found at the crime scene and that's exactly no one took a picture of the bullet when it was extracted from the body it's you're talking about a crime scene you're not that's my point yeah exactly like you take pictures of everything before you touch it no but what it does for the movie is it heightens a lot of things because it shows you how much of a bad guy pacino is it makes the gun that pacino now has infinitely more important because whoever has that gun is essential is going to be considered the murderer so the next scene they go he goes back to the police station he just hands them the bullet and he uh says that he wants a full report on it because <laughs> he's just rubbing it in their fucking faces again pacino having the reputation he does to be this like grandiose cop who can like you know outsmart these situations and gain this this platform as like a head cop like i feel like it's easy for the characters to excuse that behavior whereas for us it's like for the audience well, like, to them they think that they're doing something very important because this big important police detective is telling me to do it but in reality he's exactly. telling you to do this for busy work so that he can cover up his own crimes right and do his own investigation because let's not forget, he knows who the killer is long before the rest of the cops do. Right. And he does everything in his power to try and keep them busy not to find the facts. Mm-hmm. Except for Hillary Swank's character. Because she hands him in this scene a full report on uh, Hap's murder. And Pacino doesn't sign it. He says, check all the facts. Your name is on the report. Right, right, right. He doesn't want to incriminate her. But then we get to the real interesting stuff. Pacino goes to the hotel and he gets a phone call. And like we said, this is 50 minutes into the movie. And he gets that phone call from Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. Robin Williams just goes into uh, how he knows Pacino has insomnia. I know. It's like, it's, how, how do you know? It's one of those things that I, it's easier for me to excuse that like you get the idea maybe he's been being watched but it's that it's that seven, uh, whatever John Doe way about Robin Williams' character where he's mysterious and creepy enough that like you can buy into like the weird shit he's saying, you know? Hello. Can't sleep, Will. Me neither. Who's this? I got a nap this afternoon, and I guess you had to work. Who am I speaking to? Did you get rid of your clock yet? Won't really help. But that's what I, that's what Rob Williams studied. Like that's what I was talking about earlier. The it's Ted just, Bundy. It's the Ted it's, Bundy or it's the, the very Jeffrey bizarre, Dahmer. 
it's the bizarre stuff that they say that seems so normal to anyone else that may seem like a normal thing to say but at the same time we're like we know why it's weird for him to say that specifically you know like i'm not making light of this but if you listen to jeffrey dahmer talk about what he did to his victims he just tells you flat out his heart to reuse uh a line from silence of the lambs his heart rate never goes above 80 uh rob williams tells al pacino i saw you shoot your partner The plot so, immediately takes a left turn. Immediately, because now Pacino is under the thumb of the killer. So Pacino goes to the funeral of Kay, and she he sees that uh, Kay's boyfriend is flirting with the best friend. The only reason I bring that up is because the next scene is very entertaining. When Al Pacino says, hey, Kay's friend, you want to ride home? Um he says to her he says want to go somewhere she says sure as long as it's somewhere fun and dances her fingers up pacino's thigh in which that's when she's i thought a high school girl flirting she's... with a 60 something year old man he drives down the wrong side of a one-way road almost getting hit by a truck and then pulls her into the dump i, I wrote uh, what is it about the dead girl's boyfriend in front of a, a lumber yard while she's crying. And I said, this is also very twin. They're at a, uh, yeah, they're literally at a dump and he starts grilling her. He goes full Pacino in those, in those moments. That's where the he literally up. picks up garbage and he, he's like, she was found wrapped up in garbage bags. This is the spot where your best friend's naked body was dumped. Wrapped up in garbage bags. That is the J- Jimmy Hoffa of this movie. That's the angry. That's um, angry Pacino. But it also, it's just funny because Laura Palmer, unless we forget when you, you know, when you do dive in, was, they, they keep saying she was wrapped in plastic. A so I'm plastic going, bag for a helmet. Plastic bag for a helmet. It, got, it gets very heated very fast. I had many very questions fast. and then immediately I said, you know what, let me just let this movie do its thing. But the main thing Pacino wants to know is who was her secret boyfriend? And she gives him one name, Brody. Somehow he's able to figure out that Brody is synonymous with uh, her favorite author. The logic gaps in terms of like putting clues together were more, I had to suspend more disbelief in this little montage than in any other part of the movie because because he was it, able to figure it out within a matter of seconds it literally and this is what i how i wrote it in the film he i wrote detective pacino looks at a book scribbles notes on paper looks up names in a phone book he dwells while waiting on a payphone, and all of a sudden he arrives at this location and he's exactly where he needs to be <laughs> honestly the, those 10 minutes are feel very different than the rest of the film because the next scene it goes full seven and oh my god <laughs> he breaks into rob williams apartment and rob williams gets to his door and somehow <laughs> uses the force to sense that pacino's character is in the apartment 
It's a full drops his bags and runs. It's a full foot chase. It's a, a fucking lock chase it's because crazy. somehow Robin Williams runs to this this area where they're like sending logs down the river, and Pacino and him somehow run across these logs like Frogger. I just said there's no way Pacino can run like this in his old age. And then I put in all caps, he is literally running on moving logs. <laughs> Williams made it across the river. Pacino just drops it. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> and then I will say, but then he falls. And I said, okay, now it's a little more realistic. And I said, wow, he's trapped under logs. And then I said, when they cut to the water, him drowning, I said, this was... This this is starting to feel a little a little reminiscent of Dunkirk when Harry Styles almost drowned. Harry Styles is the new Al Pacino. You heard it I, here, everyone. You heard it here, folks. You know, um, that's it, man. I, I I got faith in that kid. He's got it in him. Uh, so then after this ridiculous chase, so uh, Pacino goes back to William's apartment. Uh, he's going to plant the gun. Rob Williams calls Pacino in his own apartment and automatically is like, do you need, do you need some towels? Do you, do you need anything? You could stay the night, you know? <laughs> yeah. Please. He's play, completely playing with him. But the main objective of the phone call was that Robin Williams wants to meet with Al Pacino on the ferry the next day. Mm. And we cut to the police station where the ballistic report came back and it was a 38, which was Walter Finch's gun. So Pacino's plan, his magic plan worked. Then we get to the real good stuff. This is the real heat moment. Like, literally, this is heat 2.0. Where you get to the ferry. I think this might be, I don't know. Maybe it's just the tension, but I think this might have been the best part of the movie. This was definitely, this is my favorite part of the movie. Yeah. Automatically, they both drop all pretenses. He knows that Williams killed Kay, and Williams knows that Pacino killed Hap. They both have come to this agreement where they have acknowledged what the other one has done, but they're stuck on a ferry together in public and they're, can, they literally just have their dialogue. But That's the dialogue it. is so brilliant because they both can drop the bullshit because right. Williams is trying to lay out a case. I didn't mean to kill Kay, just like you didn't mean to kill your partner. Exactly. And the question is, but did they mean to kill them? Like, do we believe that Williams just accidentally killed Kay? Or it's, do we believe that uh, Pacino accidentally killed Hap? It's the turning point of the movie where you can logically start to question both characters. Is is Robin Williams, is Finch really the bad guy? Is, Al, is, is, is uh, Dormer really the good guy? And you can really start to analyze well, what is the truth here? And is truth really even the point? Or is it really just what you make out to be of this crime story? Because and, really, ultimately, and we'll get to this at the end, but really it's just about to be about the points of view of what happened from two people who had inner struggles and inner feelings and grudges, and they both resort in these acts of violence that neither one initially intended. And it comes to fruition in this one moment on the ferry where both men are on this equal playing field. Yep. With their guilt. You're trying to impress me, Finch, because you got the wrong guy. Killing that girl made you feel special, which you're not. 
You're the same distorted, pathetic freak I've been dealing with for 30 years. You know how many of you I caught with your pants down? I never touched her like that when you wanted to. Now you wish you had. Hmm? Best you could do it. Clip her nails. Now you're so different. You don't get it, do you, Finch? You're my job. You're what I'm paid to do. You're about as mysterious to me as a block toilet is to a fucking plumber. Reasons for doing what you did? Who gives a fuck? It's the, it's the, it's, it's like I said, it's the, it's the entire balancing moment where even though you still want to believe Pacino's the protagonist, Robin Williams is the antagonist, that you actually question both characters. You actually question the motive and are they both really that different from each other? Yeah. And this is, I, good. this is also an exposition dump because they lay out their plan for how they're going to get away with their crimes. Because like we said, they both have the goods on each other. Uh, Pacino told Williams, you have, you have to come in for questioning. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get you out. You just need to come in for questioning and don't talk about the boyfriend. And Williams agrees. Williams uh, mentions previously that there's always a wild card in these cases and in this case it's going to be the gun so where is the gun and pacino says don't worry about the the gun that line comes back later yeah the wild card comes back later because williams when getting off the boat holds up a tape recorder and says wild card yeah just not as funny as uh as charlie from charlie Jones when Sonic. he wow god bitches wow. <laughs> yeah it's a moment that almost should have been expected but at the same time, it's like, you know, you're still a little surprised. Like, oh, okay. Like, he's up making mistakes. He's got this on record. Now, where's it going to go? Because I really, at that point, I could, I could no longer foresee where the story was going to go. I'll skip ahead a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say that the next moment I flagged was when they were on the phone. I don't know if it's when they're on the phone again, when he describes how he killed the girl. It is on the, that's where I was going with it. Because Pacino goes back to the hotel He's trying to cover the light as always mm -hmm. while he's having a flashback. And then he gets a phone call from Robert Williams and Williams is again, pressing the uh, point. We should pin this on Kay's boyfriend. Correct. Pacino is again, dismissing it. But it's interesting to hear how you, you know, it's going to become about the murder. And yet it's like, he didn't have the murder on his mind. It was really just kind of like, it just, it's almost like it just happened, you know? It's, well, he's trying to justify why he killed her. Right. Saying she laughed at me. And he says, have you ever had someone laugh at you? Someone you thought respected you? And he started hitting her. Yes. And she started to scream. So he had to kill her because if he didn't kill her, it would have led to him going to prison. So he had to kill her. Yeah. He jumped to all these immediate conclusions. Yeah, he's trying to justify what he did. Um, but again, he's still underplaying what we find out later. Um, I will say in that scene, I don't know if you have notes on it, but when he's describing this interaction between him and her as he's killing her, and they cut to the flashes of, and it's literally just flashes, like milliseconds of just mm -hmm. her screaming. Um, and then all of a sudden it pauses, and you know it's the moment that he did it, and he said, after that I was calm, real calm. And the close-up is just her lips. Mm -hmm. And he's wiping the blood off of her face. 
Everything was clear. There was no turning back. After that, there was calm. You and I share a secret. We know how easy it is to kill somebody. To so what you were saying, his creepiness comes out again because he says, it feels good to talk about this. I'll yeah. be able to sleep now. <laughs> and I also have to mention uh, in this scene, Pacino and Williams again are talking about the wild card because again, Williams is talking about the gun. Mm-hmm. And Pacino is saying, don't worry about the gun. Do you have the toenail clippings and the dress that she was killed in? And right, Williams, and right. And Williams is like, oh, that's good, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those are obviously plants for later. And, and then the next morning, Swank picks uh, up Pacino to go, they're going to go to the police station so they could talk to Riley Williams' character. But there was the poignant moment where Swank says to uh, Pacino, A good cop can't sleep because a piece of the puzzle's missing, and a bad cop can't sleep because his conscience won't let him. You said that once. I did? Well, it sounds like something I'd say, don't it? Yeah. Pacino gives that blank stare, that amazing blank stare. Like, (laughs) who said that? That's good. She's like, you you said that. Yeah. I did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's very good. (laughs) <laughs> it's very Pacino of him to like not know what she's talking about, but then she's like, "Oh, that was you," and for him to quickly be like, "Oh yeah, 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 you know, I'm good." Like I was, you know. So they go to the police station where Ron Williams is being interrogated, which I thought was the whole interaction was fascinating. This whole scene. Yeah. Again, Williams is just very calm, cool, and collected, and you know, just spewing his venom out there. Um. I just thought it was great how they both did play on words as if they were discussing were like the, they were strangers to each other. Like that dialogue, like um, uh, Pacino says to Robin Williams, he says, you know, what exactly was the nature of your relationship with this girlfriend? You know, like he's asking him as if like, he doesn't already know, have an idea of the answer. Um, Well, his, uh, the dynamic is interesting because Pacino and Williams set up what was going to be discussed. Right. And Williams decides to go off script and against what Pacino has been saying this whole time. Yep. Saying, oh, maybe it was the boyfriend. The boyfriend was known to hit her and she was scared and worried about the boyfriend. Then Pacino changes the dynamic again completely in the room. Yeah. By deciding, by pulling over the chair real hard. I don't even think he sits on the chair. And it's like, all right, you want to play hardball? Let's play hardball here. What was right. the nature of your relationship? No, exactly. seriously. What did you do? Did you touch her? Did he you said you wanted, to, you wanted to fuck her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And But that's a, it's just interesting because you like to think you know these characters and the understanding that they have. And then this scene happens and you're like, oh, like this is totally unpredictable now. Now they're going to get at each other, but they have to do it in a way as if they had not had prior conversation. And Williams lays out... The boyfriend had a 38 millimeter gun and where he keeps it. That's a dog. That's a dog because Williams found the gun that Pacino planted in his apartment. Yeah. And decided to put it in Kay's boyfriend's apartment. Oh, man. I will say, and I'm just going to get a a little ahead of you, but that the tension from that scene onto the next was just um well we can go right into it because that's where i was going pacino I mean, leaves the station in a fervor 
He's like, I gotta get out of here. I'm hot. I'm hot. He was he was full Jimmy Hoffa. Like he was, he was just. Hoffa. And he speeds down the fucking road to uh, the boyfriend's apartment. That was the point where I was like, I don't know if I've seen this movie in full because I I have no idea what's gonna happen. Yeah. And like I had complete, I don't, I completely forgotten whatever it was I had seen because I was like, oh my god, like this is getting, this is becoming crazy, you know. And he's just getting ahead of them, and the editing starts to pick up really quick because they cut back to the police station. The cops are doing their own thing. They're like, we're on it. We have the warrant, and it cuts back to Pacino, and he's unscrewing the vents and. He's it, looking for the gun. Can he find it before they get there? It's and the crazy. answer is no, he can't because the <laughs> cops get there and they find the gun before Pacino does. But and I do love how Pacino just shower. slips in there. Oh my God, like the tension. I was literally sweating. I was like, oh Pacino my God. Pacino just like comes out of the bathroom because he hides in the bathroom when the cops get in there initially. And he slips out. He's like, what's going on here? It was... Very Jimmy Hoffa of him. You can get ahead uh, a little bit. Yeah, we can get ahead a little. Hillary Swank goes back to the abandoned house area and discovers a, another bullet that is different than the one that the cops found. Wonder how that happened. The old Nancy Drew, as the cops later referred to her as. While that's going on, Pacino and Williams were meeting again at a bridge of some kind. Williams is all proud of himself. He's like, yeah, we did it. We got away with it, guy. Come on. Yeah, yeah. We did it. They think the boyfriend did it. You don't have to go to prison. I don't have to go to prison. What's the what's the problem here? And Pacino, again, goes berserk because he has not slept at this point in, I think, six or seven days. And he holds a gun to William's head. He Pacino is like, I'm going to tell the cops everything. He's kind of had it. He just wants his conscience to be clear so he can go to sleep again. But um, and and but but Finch, Robin Williams, makes a good point. He says, you know, after he threw away the footage, he's like, you got rid of the only evidence that proved that you and I had ever met outside of the interrogation. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he just, pr- he's proving that yeah. he has all the more balance to show that Dormer, that Pacino looks like a crazy person. And let's take another step back here, because I don't know if we put enough emphasis on this. If this breaks that Pacino covered up a case in Alaska, Mm -hmm. it's going to break that he covered up a case in LA. And all of the cases, all of the people he put away over the years are going to be able to appeal their cases because they will be under grounds of, did this cop plant anything? His whole reputation is on the line when he says that, I don't care, I'm going to just give up my I'm going to give myself up so it's a big change from the beginning where he literally shot uh Hap Pacino calls out Williams flat out he's like Williams again says I didn't mean to kill her and Pacino says you didn't mean to strangle her for 10 minutes yeah yeah I know that you strangled her for 10 minutes but everything is being unleashed here Williams is again, is trying to make that equivalency of we're the same. We both didn't mean to kill the person. And Pacino is trying to make the, for his own sanity, is trying to claim, no, we're not the same. You strangled this girl for 10 minutes. Yeah. I, I accidentally shot my partner. But again, we're questioning, was it an accident that he shot his partner? But that's the whole question that comes into fruition at the very last scene of the movie. Well, no, it comes in relatively the next scene in the movie because Pacino goes back to his hotel and with uh with uh with the mother from Liar Liar but Pacino 
story about the, Dobbs and the murdered boy, the eight-year-old boy. Yeah, he lays it all bare. He's saying that the reason he planted evidence before was because the case that he was working on was of a murdered eight-year-old boy, and he had the guy who did it. He knew who did it. He just needed that little push. a little bit of evidence, and it's just so it's so interesting that that and it cuts back to the first scene. Am I, if I'm not mistaken? Mm-hmm. Um, that it's just interesting that that tiny little bit of detail, you almost agree with what he did because he was so he was so not angry, but he was so caught up in the seriousness of the case that he was willing to do whatever means necessary to expose the killer, to expose the victim, uh, to expose the the suspect, you know? Well, see, this is interesting because I, on watching it, completely disagreed with him. I said, that's not your call. I, I know this is idealistic, but the evidence would point to the fact that he's guilty. And that's, and yeah. you have no right to plant evidence that is going to upend everything for your own selfish short term gain that's the, yeah and i think that's the whole point of the of his character because he has this reputation for being the best he's the he catches all the bad guys he's always coming out on top he's always catching you know and it makes you wonder when he tells the story because that is the turning point of his character the whole movie is a turning point but this is the one where it's like this is the pivotal moment where it's like okay now I don't even know if I've been watching a good person because it's like yeah. you look at you wonder how much he's manipulated all of his cases, and then you wonder how honest he's been about everything he's done up until this point. But even the metaphor of him putting up the pillows on the window to try and cover up, like you're saying, like he's this light shrouding in of like whatever the truth is, and then when he says to her, he goes, um, "It's it's." it's so bright in here. She goes, no, it's dark. And she turns she on the light. the light. Like, yes, it's metaphorical, but that's also like the entire point of his character. Like he's literally trying to hide in his darkness. He's trying to hide. He's trying to shroud whatever truths he can in darkness. And yet there's always someone there to turn the light. Like, no, this is, this is what's actually here. And in an insomniatic fever, he decides he's not going to take it anymore and is erratically driving just like leonard should not be driving this man should not be driving <laughs> I am, yeah. he's driving along and like hallucinating as he goes first he goes to ron williams apartment breaks down the door thinking yep. that williams would be there but he's not in fact hillary swank went to Robin williams cabin now the problem has been doubled because hillary swank is now in danger She's going to question Rob Williams about what's going on. Again, movie logic. Swank sees Kay's dress. Yep. So the shit is up. Yeah, it's that's the moment. That's when everything. This is when you know the end is coming. You see, you're like, okay, this is we. Swank eat. pulls out a gun and Williams just punches her right in the face. It gets very aggressive very quick. Yeah, this is before Million Dollar Baby. Otherwise, she would have kicked his ass. And. Pacino, of course, strung out as he is, gets to Robin Williams' uh, house. You know, they take down Robin Williams through sheer force of will. I Look, just wrote lots of quick cuts. Lots, yeah, lots of, of quick fast cuts. Editing. It happens very fast. It's not poorly done. It's just very quick. It's very it back and forth. It's very Jason. Dunn. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because it's like the action and suspense is so high, and yet you're just trying to focus on who's in the shot and seeing who's 
you know who who's getting killed or who's whatever and like yeah. Yeah, they're just firing and breaking windows and you're just trying to keep up ultimately what happens is williams dies but pacino also gets shot they shoot each other they shoot each other and swank uh pulls out pacino as he's dying holds up the bullet and is like no one needs to know no one needs to know and he, um, he takes the bullet. Um, he says, don't he lose says, your way. Yeah, he says, just let yeah, me sleep. <laughs> don't you lose your way. And the last line of the movie, just let me sleep. And then it's over. It's a very abrupt straight, ending. Straightforward, very abrupt, and yet like a kind of poignant ending. Because like, what other story is there to tell with your characters gone? Like, You know what I mean? Like it's, you, I don't know. Like it's the you, ultimate finale. Well, I just really, because you don't see what Hillary Swank does with the bullet, right? She keeps it or he, she's about to throw it. She's about to throw it and Pacino like folds it back up into her hand and is saying, no, tell them. But it's almost interesting that to me, it's way more interesting that you don't even see. Because at first I was like, when it cut to credits, I was like, that can't be it. And I'm thinking like, but at the same time, I stirred with it the way that I do with a lot of his movies where I'm kind of like, maybe I'm just supposed to dwell on this and wonder, did she tell the truth? Did she turn him in? Did she he loves accept- his open and he loves his open ended endings. It, and it, and it works. You know what I mean? Like, sure. They could have done like a quiet, even thought, you know, speechless montage or a, no dialogue of just her showing the bullet to someone to at the police at the precinct and whatever. And like, uh, whatever there could have been something some some narration about him and I don't know but it's almost like that's too much it's too much closure it's too much no I agree I feel like this ended at the perfect spot because we don't need to see this man's reputation brought down we saw him tortured enough in life why torture him again in death right and it's just it's interesting because it comes back to that moment for me about the gray area how different are these two men like one of them sure was a little creepier he he tortured a little more he he but the fact that we're even talking about like the details about the way in which they killed people is like shows that like really how different are they like oh because one person took 10 minutes to kill another person and the other took uh, accidentally it was uh, uh whatever a few a few seconds a minute whatever and it's like it boils down to this conversation of like really uh the indifferences of two men who deal with guilt who deal with intentions and that's what i love about that last dialogue where she's like did you i don't remember i didn't write it down but she says um she's like did you did you mean to do it did you do it on purpose and he's like i don't know anymore so uh i guess that could bring us to our final thoughts on the movie i will say i forgot to make a note because i've been i want to make this a running thing since i said it from the first episode is um Nolan often lacks humor. The cop at the bar towards the end says, uh, what has two thumbs and loves blowjobs? He points to himself and says, this guy. Did I find it very funny? Not necessarily, but it's Nolan going for humor. And I want to make a note that there is humor in all of his films. This may be his most bleak movie of the three we've watched so far. I think it might be... uh, Maybe... It might be his bleakest of them all memento's bleak because you already know the role leonard's taking on but this is like i didn't feel good after watching this movie and not in a bad not in a bad way but like i was just like oh like this is like a kind of a depressing story you know so um 
but even in Memento, you have those moments with Leonard where you're kind of laughing, maybe not at him, but he has that like smile where he's like, oh, who are you again? You know, it, yeah, yeah, it yeah. brings more of a charm. This is just like, you are in a place where the sun doesn't set. You are going to feel as... You're enveloped in this man, in, in a man's guilt who you want to follow. He's the protagonist. You want to believe he's... He, you want to believe that he's good and you're rooting for him. He's the protagonist. And yet, like, once you bring in the antagonist, you realize, like, what is good and evil and what is right and wrong? And it's all guilt. It's all remorse. And it's really just, you feel it in this movie. You don't feel like justice is served. You feel like it's kind of just, like, it's brought to light, but, like, you don't know if it's what's right or wrong anymore. Yeah. I got to say, though, uh, for my my final thoughts on this movie, it He's a, again, you know, we don't talk about this movie in Nolan's canon enough. This is a great movie. To me, this is the best movie we have watched thus far in his uh, canon. I know maybe you like Memento a little bit more, but this sure. one hit home for me. It's, um, this definitely opens the door for future Nolan tropes and themes and filmmaking that he would later make staples for himself, you know? Whereas it felt very much so like both following a memento, he was finding that footing. He was trying to find his voice and trying to patent down whatever it is he's trying to do. And this is the first time you're like, you almost have a very clear idea of like, okay, like I get an, under, an understanding of this director's vision and his style, even if he denounces the movie or doesn't talk about it or just whatever, or even if he just chooses not to. I don't think he denounces it. He just... I feel like if you're going to talk to him about his filmography, this isn't going to be his go-to movie. Right. Which almost makes it more interesting because it's because no one talks about it. I was almost like, I went in with a more open mind and I was more pleasantly surprised than I thought I would be. This kind of reminds me of, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not comparing Nolan to Kubrick, but Spartacus, like Kubrick didn't like Spartacus. He, or didn't really consider it his own. And I feel mm -hmm. like Nolan has the same thing here. It yeah. was the means to an end. Right. He doesn't consider this his own. Yeah. It's almost like it was an agreement to keep the studio happy, to make enough money to fund whatever was next. And like we've said from the beginning, it's like he does a one for me, one for you. Um, and it's just interesting because this is almost like the unsung hero of his filmography that it makes it more interesting because yep. no one talks about it because he doesn't talk about it. It makes it that much more special because like you almost wonder like, well, what is it about this that keeps it from that uniqueness of his other movies? And then you're like, Oh wait, this is like almost as good as his other films. All right. You ready to let everyone know what your pick of the week is for a movie? Absolutely. You want me to go first? Go for it. All right. So I'm going to go with Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men. <laughs> I'm going to stick, I'm going to ride that post-apocalyptic theme Clearly. hard. I'm just going to take it to heart until I feel like I don't need to. So that is it. It's probably, I think, one of the greatest movies I've seen of the, at least of the news of the century. Yeah. It's I'm a big fan. I think it resonates with what's going on in the world as of this recording. Uh, yep. But it's also just an incredibly well shot and well uh, told, well told story. And yours, the seven samurai. I 
recently watched it on the Criterion Collection, and it's a three and a half hour black and white Japanese movie, and it goes by like that. It is just astounding. It, you just watch that movie and you just feel its influence over all of cinema. Because chances are you have seen this movie a million times without even realizing it. That's just how relevant it is in cinema in general. So watch the original. Watch Seven Samurai. Yes, I have not watched it since college. That's one of those that's been on my to-do list for a while to rewatch. And we'll get there when we get there because that has been on my list. Alrighty. And is there anywhere the good people could find you online or still no uh, social media here? I'm still going to give my, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to keep promoting Mr. Film Art on Instagram. I think that's the way to go for now. There it is. All right, everyone. <laughs> I'll see, we'll see you next time when we uh, cover or we begin the Batman Dark Knight trilogy.